Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Agroni, chief editor of Cinemaholics. I'm also a film critic for Awards Watch, The Spool, and The Young Folks. And you know, I don't need an origin story for you to know that I am scared of Dalmatians. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he's always looking for the angle. It's Will Ashton. Hello. Are you actually afraid of Dalmatians? I am. They're scary. They're, they're violent. They're, they're very big dogs. Yeah. They are They are supposed to be very aggressive. They are. But I always loved the movie 101 Dalmatians, which is, of course, alluding to our big review this week, which is for Cruella, which is now in theaters and on a Disney Plus premiere access. Before we get into that, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com, including our written reviews, other bonus content. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com is how you can hit us up. If you'd like to support our show, there are two main ways to do that. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash cinemaholics. Please consider donating, supporting the show. It really helps out a lot. Uh, also, if you are interested in Cinemaholics merch, you can go to our merchandise page on cinemaholics.com. You can get a hoodie, mug, t-shirt, shot glass, whatever you like. Links to all that and more are in the show notes. Now, we are going to be talking about A Quiet Place Part 2 later this week. Uh, so Will Ashen has not had a chance yet to catch A Quiet Place Part 2. If you are curious in on my thoughts for the film, my review for it is currently available on Awards Watch, so you can find out what I think of A Quiet Place Part 2. We're also hoping to talk about a new movie called Plan B, which just came out on Hulu. I'm very excited to talk about that. Although I don't know if uh, you'll be able to see Plan B in time. If not, we'll have a special guest. Uh, but Plan B is on Hulu. If you're listening now, I definitely just want to say recommend it. Go watch it. Very funny comedy. It's Memorial Day weekend, though. So, of course, it's difficult to do all the recording that goes into the process for Cinemaholics. But we're making it happen. Yeah, uh, actually, I forgot to mention, I did see one other film this week that um, it came out a couple weeks ago, so I wasn't planning to review it. But I did end up seeing uh, Here Today, the uh, Billy Crystal movie with tiffany haddish yeah i remember you watching that i, I did not yeah. uh, feel any jealousy when you told me you had saw sure that out. um but yeah i mean I, that was just when i saw kind of a spur of the moment thing i was vaccinated and i was like i want to see a movie and that was what was playing uh it's it's okay it's a very strange film and i don't know if it's worth getting into why it's so strange but i found it to be somewhere between baffling and kind of touching uh it's not a very good film but uh, I don't know if anyone is curious, maybe I'll discuss that more <laughs> at yeah. a later date, but I feel like most people have forgotten about that film. So I, I don't feel the need to really uh, dive into it too much, but that is also a film I've seen in the past week. I know you also watched blue miracle on Netflix. Well, part of it. Yeah. Oh, you didn't finish it. No, well, because we weren't covering it, I opted not to finish it. Oh, wow. That's not, not exactly a blazing recommendation. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, what I saw was fine. Just that I didn't really have a lot of time to see things that we weren't covering on the show or I was covering elsewhere. So uh, when I heard that you weren't planning to see it for the podcast for reasons unknown, uh, I decided not to finish it. So maybe at a later point, but yeah. I said exactly why I'm not watching it. And that's because I do not want to. And <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just a big old skip for me, but I have been catching up on some other things in the interim. Started watching Underground Railroad, also checking out season two of Mythic Quest. There's just a lot of content on, and it's also, like I said before, it's Memorial Day weekend, wanting to do some more fun activities now that I'm vaccinated. I know you're vaccinated as well, so mm -hmm. we'll see how scheduling is going to work for us moving forward and how we're going to be adjusting the show, so watch this space. On that note, you know, speaking of big changes and 
things just sort of uh, happening. Let's talk about a pretty monumental merger that hit the news this past week. Amazon, uh, of course, the Amazon we know is the delivery website, but then also, of course, they have Prime Video, one of the major streaming players. They just spent $8 billion acquiring MGM, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. So one of the premier long-running legacy studios. Yeah, one of the longest studios in movie history. Of course. And they are now under the thumb of Amazon. And it's a big deal, of course. I, a lot of people are asking, though, why why make this acquisition? I mean, the major thing that MGM has to its name is James Bond these days. Yeah. Aside from James Bond, there aren't a ton of things, although you know their library is pretty impressive. I mean, they have the Rocky franchise. Mm-hmm. They have Legally Blonde. They're going to have um, like Adam's Family. They're going to have, uh, gosh, Fargo. I mean, there, there's plenty of stuff. Sure. But it is curious that Amazon is going to have control of these titles and yeah what do you what do you make of it well well i have to assume as you're mentioning that they primarily bought mgm because they wanted james bond and i think I, at one point it was never officiated but there were rumors that during the pandemic they wanted to buy no time to die and mgm was sticking to it because i was like their major earner so i my theory is that they were just like well, okay we'll just by you because MGM isn't the uh, powerhouse studio that it was at one point outside of some of the bigger franchise films that you're talking about. But the weird thing about MGM is that at this point, like a lot of their bigger properties are co-owned by other studios. So like something like right. the wizard of Oz, like I don't think they technically have ownership of it at this point. They may have like co-ownership because that's primarily with Warner brothers. So, and I, and I have to imagine that's the case with a lot of other films under MGM's umbrella at this point. Well, James so, Bond, those movies have been coming out through Sony. Right? Sure. So, you know, the, there's a lot of shakeup that happened in between the Pierce Brosnan, James yeah. Bond films and the Daniel Craig, James Bond. But films. I believe that universal picked up, um james bond during the like for this most recent one i think there that's going to be a universal film now right i'd have to double check because okay. i mean I, there's been so many updates and changes sure I, I thought that's what happened but you know like you said it's it's kind of a it's hard to keep track of these things but um yeah i'm just wondering if like if amazon's like thinking like oh we have all these fr- franchises under our belt and they're gonna like look under the toy box and realize that they don't have as many things or if they just solely only care about James Bond and they're just like, OK, we don't care. Like we're just, you know, for Amazon, nine billion dollars is pocket change. Like we just want uh, James Bond so we can do a bunch of franchise things with it, because I know that um, that was like their their quote, their pull quote was that basically they want to expand their like franchise potential for the 21st century, which is a very bleak thing to hear. <laughs> when you uh, think about uh, what may happen to high-profile original films if they're just going to be sought for franchise merchandise at this point, which is, you know, sad and kind of the trend. But It's that sad, is, yeah, yeah. It's sad, but yeah, it's a trend. It's nothing new. I, for sure. me, I, I've become so beaten down by this sort of thing. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really phase me at this point. It's like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just right. par for the course. I think a lot of people are sort of being submissive to the news considering a year ago we weren't sure if movies were going to survive the year. And yeah. a lot of people are looking at this sort of thing with more optimism, I guess, for that reason. But yeah, of course. Maybe. I mean, it's just, I, I know some people are because they just sort of see franchises as commodities and not necessarily mm-hmm. artistic endeavors. Uh, so I, I did I did double check it and I, I was I was a little... I wasn't sure about Universal. So the 
the deal is it is a little complicated. Universal is going to be distributing, um, but only internationally. It's still MGM in North America. And sure. that's only because, yes, Sony's contract with them did expire uh, after mm-hmm. Spectre. So th- that hopefully that kind of explains There's a lot of other things though like universal will have some other rights to it like how it will be streamed and i think physical media as well so it's a complicated mess but that's kind of how james bond movies have always sort of been and i'm uh yeah hopefully giving it its due but yeah it it sounds like you're definitely looking at this as like a a smart move for amazon i mean for me it makes sense Uh, to or smart move i mean like a fitting thing you know like James Bond would suit their service well. I was thinking that Jack Ryan has been a boon for them sure. on Amazon Prime Video. It's kind of, you know, it's not the same sort of deal, but like people like spy stuff and Amazon is kind of becoming a mature content, uh, not heavy mature content, like dad movie kind of enterprise. And yeah. I do think that they are really struggling to find something that just like becomes a phenomenon. There, there aren't a ton of Amazon Prime shows that have really broken huge. I mean, one of their bigger shows, maybe like The Boys, sure. and even that feels pretty niche compared to a lot of the other breakout hits we've seen on other streaming services yeah. like Netflix or even Apple TV's like Ted Lasso. I mean, there's just like critical darlings that show up here and there. But with Amazon, I mean, they have Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. They, you know. Mm-hmm. They have things every once in a while, but I, yeah, it just seems like they're sort of like surviving on the fact that a lot of people will not get rid of their service because they use Amazon Prime. Yeah, but that's a thing, right? Because they, they're kind of in the same boat as Netflix, because as you were mentioning, they have Underground Railroad, which by all measures should be like something they should be widely promoting and celebrating like, hey, we got the new film from one of our you know most revered filmmakers based on a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And, you it's know, it's like... Yeah, it's a series and they just kind of dumped it unceremoniously, you know, a couple weeks ago to the point where like critics had to be like, hey, like, don't forget about this amazing show that Amazon just doesn't really seem to give uh, much care or notice to for whatever reason. I usually get screeners for Amazon shows like months in advance. I didn't get anything or hear anything. I didn't see a single press release for this. I did have like the first time I even heard of Underground Railroad was through other critics. Critics have been talking about this show for a couple of months because a bunch of other critics were able to get their hands on screeners and they were watching it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this this sounds like it could be a massive hit for Amazon. But uh, like you're saying, like the actual (laughs) marketing department hasn't really like uh, to my like i haven't heard a peep or seen a peep of the show uh, the only reason i'm even aware of it is because of the critical community which yeah that that is a sign that something is amiss and i i definitely don't understand what amazon's plan is going to be like are they going to churn out a bunch of franchises from mgm properties like i could see it happening i could see like them being like okay let's make a tomb raider show let's make you know sure. let's make our own um legally blonde series there's all kinds of things that. they could do with these characters yeah Yeah, I mean, I definitely uh, they're going to do something with Legally Blonde. I'm sure they're going to do something with Rocky. Like, I know at one point Sylvester Stallone was alluding to, like, I think like a Rocky prequel or something. And I imagine uh, MGM's just makes. Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) And sign that off. Yeah. Um, Which I don't know. I mean, I don't know what really needs to be explored with Rocky's earlier years. But I mean, sure, I guess I'll watch it. Maybe. Who knows? Well, it's us. We'll, We'll basically watch anything, to be totally fair. I mean, I'm just nervously waiting to see what franchises and would-be franchises that uh, Amazon is going to try to milk out of this. But 
uh, like you're alluding, I guess it's going to be more TV stuff than films. I don't, I don't exactly know what their priorities are at this point. They're trying to boost up their their film archive, or they're just trying to put more TV streaming content out there. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they take a lot of pages from Netflix. They do like the binging only sure. kind of model. They do well. That's not true. They they do like week to week for some things. Invincible was an example of that. Um, but sometimes they don't. And I think also they, they see that the, the biggest successes, the biggest eyeballs they're probably getting on their content are for series. And I definitely think that's been the case for like the big Netflix breakout hits like Stranger Things, Tiger King, like those things are series. I, that, that's my sort of brain saying that the sustained conversation sure. of a show is more what these streaming services are after because they're more likely to bring in subscribers. I, I honestly think that that's the calculation. It's not necessarily because they're cheaper or because they're they're necessarily mm-hmm. things that they want to do over movies for any reason. I think I don't think it's arbitrary, basically, or like a favoring of series over movies. I think it's because to get people to watch movies, the the big like hook is to create like a big special event kind of movie that you have to go see in a theater right away. But for a streaming service, I think we've kind of seen with like Netflix and then all of these services, like people will just like watch whatever. And a lot of the time they'll watch things because they want to get invested in something that's going to last them. And a movie doesn't really do that. And it, I mean, some things break the rule, some things kind of come and go. But yeah, unless you're like a film aficionado, a cinemaholic, I, yeah, I don't think that the series are going to ever kind of like be unseated as like the main delivery for these streaming services. And I think that's fine because we are seeing great shows coming out of these services and being given pretty terrific budgets to make their content. Yeah. So, so you're saying that something like underground railroad or like small acts, like that's kind of a long-term play. Like they're not expecting those to like really make an impact as soon as they air, but like over time or like maybe like when the Emmys are coming around and people go back and check them out, that's when people will be inclined to seek them out. More or less. As opposed to something like as like the boys, where it's just like more of an event series. So they're kind of trying to play both cards. I think that they're trying to bring like the cinematic franchise into a series form that they have an excuse to keep doing mm-hmm. year after year without sequel expectations. And I think they're sort of leaving the film landscape to the studios that can afford the risk because it is like such a deeper, sure. heavier risk for there to be like marvel superhero films or dc films whatever it is because those movies have huge budgets and they can't fail you know they have to make hundreds of millions of dollars whereas the series as long as it brings in more subscribers it's it's something that is a little bit more sustainable in the short term but in the long term we don't know yeah but amazon that's the thing that they have such deep pockets that they can ostensibly, I feel take those risks right like they can allow themselves to take some risks that other prominent streaming services may not feel inclined to at this point. I wouldn't say that their pockets are that rich for that because I think a lot of the money that Amazon makes, yeah, they put things into acquiring things and doing all of that, but they do spend a ton of money. For years, they were in debt. You know, like for years, they didn't make a profit. Yeah, that's why um, MoviePass was trying to follow their modus operandi where it's like, oh, we'll be in debt for a few years but eventually people will catch on yeah a lot of misguided startups have tried to mimic what amazon have done and have not really sort of 
figured out what made Amazon work with all of that. And it's essentially the way they were able to keep raising money uh, very effectively and be able to show like they had a monopoly in certain, you know, or at least near a monopoly on things like books, for example, which is how they got their yeah. start. So I, yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing where I don't think that they can actually afford to drop hundreds of millions of dollars on a movie that will flop. Um, I mean, maybe they'll give it a shot, uh, but yeah, I could see it being something that could end Amazon Prime Video if they make too many mistakes because studios kind of come and go. I mean, there's how many have we seen in the last decade that have come and they've seemingly had deep pockets, but then they get shuttered because, you know, people will stop putting money or venture capital into certain companies. Uh, The stock price will plummet. You know, they have to be really sensitive of all of those different financial details. Yeah. Well, save Amazon is, of course, Bosch. Do you remember Bosch? I never watched it. Okay. I, I only watched a couple episodes. That was just my my go-to Amazon show where it's just like, I don't know anyone who's watching this. I don't know like what exactly it's doing on there, but it has like seven seasons and <laughs> it just keeps like, you know, it uh, it just keeps popping up as like, I, hey, I we got new Bosch. Yeah, you know people yeah. who watched it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is an audience. It's just not us. Sure. That's fair. Not everything is for us. I mean, I who knows? I, I If I watched it, maybe I would love it. Uh, you know, who's sure. to say? Yeah. Well, that is our our little quick conversation about Amazon and MGM. Certainly, we don't have all the answers on what's going to happen next and, and all of that. But of course, we'll be discussing it further as stuff comes out. And we'll have a better idea of what their plans are with this major acquisition. But for now, let's get into one of our reviews this week. Cruella. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels you're dead. If I'd cared about anyone or thing, I might have died. You have the talent. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question. She thought she owned everyone. It's foolish. Unhinged. Or you're fired. Why are you speaking? I think you've licked me. But there's something about poetic justice that's just so poetic. You won't admit you love me. And so, how do you have a light? To know you always tell me. Get her. This doesn't have to be a scene. It really, really does. Can I just remind you all that I'm doing this in heels? What was your name? Cruella. If you can make your mind up, we'll never get started. I want to make trouble. You in? I do love trouble. have a bit of an extreme side. Yes, darling. And what fun that is. She stole my dogs. <laughs> I guess you must hate her. She has made it me or her. And I choose me. Don't worry. There's lots more bad things coming. Perhaps... Cruella is a new fashion heist film. It's also like a crime comedy, but I, I look at it as the fashion heist movie 
And I know we've got we've gotten some fashion heist movies before. The the first one I think of is kind of um Ocean's 8. Now they weren't like I guess they were stealing fashion, but like the whole point of Ocean's 8, right, was big heist movie in the spirit of Ocean's 11 and the universe of Ocean's 11, but we're going to pull off this heist wearing fantastic clothes and and this it's in like sort of this like art and fine arts kind of world and all of that. Corella though is fascinating in the sense that it is a Disney live action reimagining of Corella Deville, the iconic villain from the 1961 animated film 101 Dalmatians, which you and I both rewatched over the last week, kind of without telling each yep. other. It kind of just happened. Sure. And I I enjoyed my rewatch. I mean, it's a, it's to me one of the really solid Silver Age Disney films. It's very different from the Golden Age of Disney. It's a bit more modern. It's based on a book that at the time was, you know, present day. And it's it's definitely a, a, a movie that is very different in terms of how it was animated, how they were trying to start to find cheaper but still effective ways to create these animated offerings that would make money. And it it actually was a success. And it's it's last of the test of time. People love 101 Dalmatians and mainly because they love those puppies and Cruella de Vil. Yeah. I mean, the thing I found surprising rewatching the film was that like for the first half of it, because it's only like 70 something minutes long, I think maybe 80 minutes. I was like watching the first half and I was just like, is this one of my favorite Disney movies? Just because like I love the animation style. It has a nice vibe to it. I, it has like this kind of jazzy feel as well. And then the weird thing is that like I feel like when the plot kind of comes into play, I start to lose interest for whatever reason. Like I was just kind of more interested in being in that world and hanging out with like the weird designs and stuff like that. And I wasn't as invested in the actual plot of the film. Uh, but it is still a, uh, as you said, like one of the uh, lasting Disney films and for a good reason. It, it is. It is. And I, I enjoy that movie as well. The first half is really fun. I think, you know, because I, I forgot a lot of the details of how that movie begins, the way that Pongo is trying to push his owner, Roger, into yeah. Ditching the bachelor life. It's a, it's a very fun first like 10 minutes. A lot of good visual gags too. I, I kind of forgot about that yeah. until I rewatched it. Yeah. 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 And it, it's, it's a movie that takes place in the 1960s. Cruella, of course, is picking up as a prequel to that film, but it is playing around with the timelines quite a bit. And I think to its credit, I mean, they decided to sort of go for a different sort of, instead of placing this in like the 50s, 60s, they're kind of doing it in the 60s when Cruella is a child and the early 1970s when she is a young adult. This film was directed by Craig Gillespie, who we last saw, I believe, in Itania. And he, of course, did yeah. like Lars and the Real Girl, a few other films. And once again, he he is doing a movie that is about a, a woman who is understood as a villain to many people, but maybe she's misunderstood. You know, Tanya Harding was the same deal, wasn't it? There's even a shot in this movie with Emma Thompson, who we'll bring up later, who we'll talk more about later. But there's a shot that literally reminded me of Itanya, the way that Margot Robbie kind of like stands up and kind of has this like deranged look in her eyes for seemingly no reason. And it's kind of like a, a flashback sequence. And they kind of, I don't know, I don't know if that was like an intentional thing. Did you pick up on that? Uh, I mean, I saw just like kind of, broad similarities between this film and Itania. Though I was going to ask, uh, to your earlier point, is this supposed to be more of a revisionist take on or is this supposed to be a prequel to live action Glenn Close 101 Dalmatians? I think it's a reimagining, reimagining through sure. and through. Because like timeline, if she's like a child in the 60s and kind of coming into her own in the 70s, it would 
makes sense, I guess, if she was like around Glenn Close's age in the first live action 101 Dalmatians. I know Glenn Close was a producer on this film, so I wasn't sure if that was like what was leading up to or if they're just kind of doing their own thing entirely because it didn't feel that connected to the animated film outside of like a few nods and touches. No, yeah, I don't think that this movie is supposed to be like a actual prequel like to what you're saying i don't think like the live action 101 dalmatians is supposed to be because i think that movie takes place in what the 90s instead of the 1960s i don't think the timeline would really work out there because i think that we see you know i don't want to give certain things away but we see certain characters in cruella that it wouldn't make sense for them to be like 20 years later so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna push back on that i just think that it is a reimagining all the way through they're trying something totally yeah, that's why i think i think they're yeah. gonna make another 101 dalmatians in this timeline it's like a it's a multiverse for oh, dalmatians i guess i guess yeah it's just it's it's a long game play i guess to to give us another live action 101 dalmatians I think so. I I think that this movie is kind of leading right into that as well. Now, this movie stars Emma Stone. She is playing the titular Cruella de Vil, but in this movie, she actually begins as a young child named Estella, not Cruella. Cruella is actually a little nickname that she gets, and over the course of the movie, starts to really look at maybe that's her real identity. This movie has a lot of identity uh, problems, you could probably say. And yeah, so this movie, it premiered just a couple of weeks ago. I believe this was supposed to come out last year, like a lot of other things. Is that the case or was it always supposed to be 2021? I actually can't remember. Um, I forget. Yeah, I thought it was supposed to come out in like fall of 2020, but I don't remember exactly, truth be told. Yeah, because they, they finished filming the the movie in 2019. So that's what made me think, oh, were they they supposed to, you know, but I, I don't remember hearing much about it. Um, I think if I had to guess, I think they were looking at it being like a holiday movie and which would make a lot of sense. Like I could see this being coming out like around Christmas Day. And I, I think that was like the actual plan. But of course, the pandemic kind of pushed everything a little bit. This one's not getting as dramatic a delay as some other films we've had to talk about, but it is now available to watch in theaters. It's also on Disney Premier Access for an extra $30. I'll set up the film real quick and then I do want to ask you, Will, if you think it is worth that extra $30. We've, we've okay. had a look at some other films like Ride the Last Dragon, had Premier Access, Mulan, and then I think maybe a few more. Uh, but sure. Corella, just to set it up real fast, I don't want to give too much away, but this is a sprawling movie. There's a lot of different things with the plot. I don't want to give away any of the twists. I don't want to give away kind of the the feel of this movie, so I'm not going to mention a ton of story elements. I think the main gist of this movie that you're in for is that we follow Estella, who is this woman with a very complicated backstory. She falls in with these two thieves, Horace and Jasper. Horace, of course, played by Paul Walter Walter Hauser. Um, Always get his name a little, you know, another Itania veteran there. Uh, Joel Fry plays Jasper. And these are like her two henchmen. You recognize them from the animated movie. But in here, they're kind of like family. You know, they're, they're best friends. They've, they've been with each other. Like they've been thieves, thick as thieves, uh, pulling off like little small time heists. And Estella is still a fashion designer, but she isn't successful yet. You know, the Cruella we know on 101 Dalmatians is kind of like implied to be like a fashion icon at this point. This movie is kind of about, well, okay, like if that's going to be the case, how would she get to that point? And would she even at all? And so most of this movie follows her kind of becoming a second fiddle 
to a woman known as the Baroness. She's the head of a fashion house. Uh, she's played by Emma Thompson, as we mentioned earlier, and she is sort of like the prototypical Cruella de Vil, but a more restrained, you know, kind of channeling Meryl Streep from Devil Wears Prada. For a good chunk of this movie, it is borrowing a huge, huge emotional and logistical weight from the Devil Wears Prada formula. I believe one of the screenwriters, in fact, uh, did was a screenwriter for Devil Wears Prada, in fact. Um, the screenplay is by uh, Dana Fox and Tony McNamara. But yeah, so that that's like the main thing of this movie. And she's sort of like trying to live up to and sort of become this like fashion powerhouse. And she sees Cruella, like the moniker of Cruella. Like maybe that's my way to do it. Maybe that's how I can break into this industry. She goes for a very... 70s rock and roll aesthetic to try to buck tradition and she also maybe has a little bit of a a revenge story out she feels like people certain people have wronged her and we sort of see her slide into villainy and to be clear that is just like a a a piece of this movie there's a lot more to it a lot more than i was expecting but will back to the big important question do you think corella is worth 30 dollars on disney plus premiere access and if so for who well, to answer your initial question, um, the movie, I guess, was originally supposed to come out on December 23rd of 2020, but it got delayed in 2019 to its May release date. So sort of uh, unintentionally, it worked out in its favor, I guess, to come out now because it wasn't actually moved uh, because of the pandemic, but it was delayed. So, okay. yeah, according to Wikipedia, at least that's what happened. But uh, to answer your other question, um, I personally would not pay 30 bucks for this movie. Unless you're like a family and you were going to spend upwards of $50 and you don't feel comfortable going to the theater, I could understand justifying that cost. But I mean, I went with my sisters and we would have we could have spent $30 to see at home or collectively we could have spent, I guess, actually less than 30 because I had Amazon or uh, AMC A-list. So um, I ended up spending less to see in theaters. So uh, I would personally say if you're going to check it out, it's better in theaters because it does have a pretty, you know, cinematic style to it. it does it does pop on the screen like it, I think it plays better on the big screen than it would uh, at home. But um, you saw at home and I did not. So I can't say for sure, especially considering that you like the film more than me. All right. So I guess we can get it. You know that I like this film. I mean, I wrote my review for Cinemaholics. You're aware that I've been I've been gushing about this movie. I will get that out of the way. I do think this is a very effective movie. I think it is really fun. It is so unique and dynamic in something that isn't unique and dynamic. And I, I, yeah, I think it's one of my preferred Disney live action remakes slash reimaginings, because I think that this is one of the rare ones that feels like somebody made it for a reason. Like they had like an idea, they had a passion behind this movie and they wanted to do something really creative with it. And that's how I see this movie. And I think that, yeah, it, it works on everything, just about everything it's going for. I think the only way, places where it really falls apart are in its runtime. And I think that it, it's just stretched a little bit too long. I think that being over two hours, having this like final act, this final sort of like set of twists and turns, I think was a bit unnecessary. And I think there's a lot of confusion that can happen around where this character is positioned. I know there are a lot of takes flying left and right about this character. And okay, is she a feminist icon? Are we glorifying her? Is there something kind of different or something kind of 
harmful about the way that this character is being presented. And I think that's all great. Like people should be having all those conversations. I think for me coming out of it, I watched a fantastically realized, gloriously fun fashion heist movie that just happened to be about a really favorable villain in the Disney franchise. And if this was what we could typically get from these Disney remakes, I would be much more supportive of them because usually we get shot for shot remakes and we get really sloppy prequels, even something like Maleficent, which this is really trying to take a page from. It's trying to be similar and like giving motivation and humanization to these characters. I, I think this one is definitely more efficient in terms of, or not efficient, I'll say it's it's a movie that's a little bit more flamboyant. Uh, you know, it's it's one that is has like more of a cinematic language to it. And you could say that it, yes, because it's taking millions of things from other movies and it absolutely is. But I think, I do think it's blending it all together into something that's really fun. I think that some things here will trip people up. The soundtrack is pretty hot and heavy. I think that most of the songs here are wonderful and they find great ways to incorporate it, but it does wear a little thin because they rely on the soundtrack a bit too much. And so, yeah, this, this is a, one of the few things about this movie, I will say less could have been more, but other than that, I am super happy with this movie. I've, I've seen it twice and I would agree with you that, yeah, watching it for $30 is a bit steep. I think seeing it in a theater probably would have been preferable. I think if you could see it with a group of people to make the $30 worth it and you're interested, if you liked the trailer, all of that good stuff, I think this one's definitely worth a watch if you're interested. And I know it's polarizing people. It sounds like it's going to polarize us. So what what did you think of this one? I guess I thought it was fine. Uh, I can see why it sparked some discourse because it's a Disney film. And I guess by uh, virtue of social media, we have to discuss the new Disney thing. But um, I, I would agree with you in that I found this to be preferable to the shot for shot remakes of something like The Lion King or Aladdin, where it just feels like big name directors are coming in to fulfill the executive's um, uh, objectives, I guess, as far as like, we just kind of want the same yeah, film again. Yeah, like do what that film did, but do it again. And I will give the movie credit in that it is doing its own thing comparatively to that. Like it's, it's it has a point of view. It's trying to have some flair, have a little bit of a pep in its step. Um, but at the same time, as you're also sort of alluding, it, it doesn't really have its own style. It's it's sort of a bit of a pache. It's trying to do many things from other different filmmakers and many other different films, sometimes effectively and sometimes not. Um, I do think the beginning of the film, maybe around like the first hour or so is, is fine. I was actually kind of with it for the beginning when we were following the early upbringing of Cruella. Um, it is sort of derivative in its own storytelling, but I do think that as you're kind of suggesting that um, Craig Gillespie is is putting a lot of flair and he's definitely doing a lot. I personally found the soundtrack to be a bit obnoxious um, and some of the, the choices to be uh, unpreferable. Not that the songs themselves are bad, but I just found the placing of them to be a bit silly and eye-rolly. Considering also that the score here is generally pretty good. It's, um, what's his name? Nicholas Brittle or Brittle? Yeah, it's either Brittle, Brittle, Brittle. Yeah, something like that. Nicholas Brittle. It's um, the guy who did the scores for the past two uh, Barry Jenkins films, including um, yeah, if Moonlight, Bill if could shot. Yeah, yeah, Bill Street. Yeah, which is, that's a great score, and I don't think this score is comparatively as good, but it's a little bit more inspired. I was listening to it just before we were recording, and it is, I think, the, I kind of wish the movie was willing to 
uh, indulge its kind of bolder aspects, but it does feel like the movie it has too many cooks in the, ki- in the kitchen in terms of like, I can clearly see where the Disney executives are going like, well, don't do that. Or like, okay, you can do this, but can we also do this? And it felt like a lot of different decisions that that hindered what Galepsi was trying to do here. And I think what generally almost makes it work is Emma Stone's performance. It's definitely trying hard. Like I don't think I don't think I've seen a performance try this hard to be iconic before, but at the same time, she is so clearly a star presence and she's putting a lot into it. And it does have some fun, mischievous uh, moments that generally speaking, I, I found her performance to be enjoyable. I also really enjoyed um, Emma Thompson in this, as well as Joe Fry and especially Paul Walter Hauser. I'm really hoping he continues to get more prominent roles because I think he's a really great actor and I, I'm happy for his success. But I mean, his his British accent is terrible, but it actually works it in this be. movie. Yeah, it's like, it's okay because he's sort of the bumbling henchman. It's fine if he sounds like ridiculous. But I mean, having rewatched the original cartoon, I feel like that's kind of the point. Like it, it felt like he was taking several cues from the original voice actors and the even original Disney films from Mary Poppins. You know, there's a little sure. bit of well, that. That's a yeah, different Disney film. But in that that spirit, sure. Like that the fact that like they're clearly Americans that are doing like Cockney British accents. Um, a bit of a, as you were alluding to earlier, a bit of a Cobb and Cooper thing <laughs> where like. <laughs> You know, like there's these kind of like, uh, you know, these these brutes that um, are almost they are basically stereotypes. But I, I I do agree with you that like they they have their own kind of mischievous charm to them. I think there's a lot here that works. I, I don't think it's a failure in like abysmal film, as some people are suggesting it is. I just found it to be uh, a little muddled overall. Yeah, I've seen some people really bring the knives out for this movie. And yeah, I just I don't personally understand it. And I'm saddened by it because I think that it's there's so much joy to be had in such a admittedly dark film. I mean, this this is a take on Cruella that one of the things I appreciate the most is that it's PG-13. It is clearly trying to like shoot for a slightly older audience. So we're talking more about like preteens. We're talking about kids who are a little bit, you know, I think that's why the soundtrack is as it is as obnoxious as you're saying. I think a lot of it is because kids will hear some of this stuff for the first time and they kind of want to introduce some of this music and make sure that you're obsessed with the soundtrack. I agree with you about the score, of course. I mean, it's it is really good. I mean, I I think that uh, Brittle 2 has done um, not just the two Barry Jenkins movies, but Underground Railroad, which you were talking about earlier he he worked on that as well and you know i think he oh, has he? worked with he did yeah he also did okay um, i do, i wasn't sure i didn't want to say because i wasn't sure yeah yeah he, he's he's worked with um barry jenkins on all three of his projects there and yeah i think he's also worked with uh i think he did battle the sexes as well so he's he's worked in an emma stone film before oh so yeah very strong mm-hmm. composer yeah, I think that this movie, you really got to be on its wavelength in a lot of ways. I think that it it kept scoring a lot of goodwill for me. It would do things that I found not so great. I, some things that I didn't love. And one of the things I didn't love is sort of how quick and drastic Estella's transition to becoming Cruella is. I wish it was a little bit more gradual, especially for a movie this long. There are some threads that they have with the way that her persona is like a disassociative thing where she clearly is having some sort of like double personality and the movie is really sloppy with that sort of thing. And it's a shame because I think there is an opportunity to make this movie a bit more meta. And it, it is meta in other ways. Like It's very meta about the Cruella character. There are a lot of things in this reimagining where it sort of implies the caricature of Cruella as sort of being a sham, the one that we sort of understand from the adaptation 
adaptation of the novel, the the original animated film, the live action film with Glenn Close. And that's the thing that I do appreciate about this movie is that it's trying to like break away from that baggage. And I think Emma Stone is doing something smart here under this direction to sort of straddle an interesting line between like who is, you know, is Cruella really for real? And to me, it would it makes the idea of a live action adaptation definitely have a lot of potential. Like we could see a movie where Corella isn't this one dimensional, admittedly awesome, you know, one dimensional villain as we see from the movies. I mean, she's just sort of psychotic in the 101 Dalmatians and clearly is like just like hell bent on murdering puppies. This movie, what I liked is that they didn't do the thing where they tried to like over explain why she would just want to murder puppies. They're, they're sort of doing something that helps them. And because this movie is a total branding exercise, they want Corella to be more of an anti hero instead of a villain, kind of like what they were doing with Maleficent. I know some people are bemoaning that. They're just like, let let the villain, let a movie have a villain like this. And like, I understand wanting that when you're our age and you've seen so many movies and you're like, I just want a villain to be a villain, if even if they're the main character. But I do understand like Disney can't really take risks like that because they're Disney and that's a shame, but it's just sort of the reality we have to deal with. So I think this is like the next best thing. And I will just reiterate, because I've reiterated it many times before, this movie had me at fashion heists. It has a really fun fashion heist where the whole thing is just about these two women trying to destroy each other in the fashion world. And a lot of it is how Cruella is like appropriating like punk, you know, aesthetic in order to become the establishment. And I've read these reviews of like people saying things about this movie that the movie does that I think that they hate. Like they're criticizing the movie for certain things that I think are intentional and that I think are part of what make the movie so charming and interesting so yeah i I think i think it's a shame that people are kind of like really looking at this thing and and kind of letting it ruin their their day it's i'm kind of bummed about that but all i can say is that i really dug the heck out of it and i would absolutely watch another one and especially if it is I, i think it's gonna be decently successful it's made something like 37 million dollars at the box office so far but it's Memorial day weekend that could get even higher the problem of course is that you know Premier Access, we don't know the numbers on that. We also don't know the exact budget. (laughs) The budget reportedly ranges, it could be as high as $200 million, which I don't believe. $200 million seems unbelievable for a movie like this. I think $100 is probably closer to accurate, but that's neither here nor there. I, I just certainly am curious to see if this is going to be as big of a hit as Disney clearly wants it to be. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I'm not quite where you are on it but i did see it like i said with my sisters and my youngest sister really did enjoy it a lot and i think she's basically the target audience for this um she's a teenager herself and i think that's clearly the audience that's going for and i think it's going to win a lot of like younger gen z audiences but yeah i I wish i was as favorable as you are on this film i'm i'm just not I, i found it to be kind of more of a shrug but i can see the appeal for sure well, ultimately, I'm going to come down with this film as a very high B. I think that it's a ton of fun. I think that it's really close to a B plus. But I'm, as I mentioned, there's just a bit too many flaws to give it that high of a grade for me, although I still solidly recommend it. And yeah, I, I've watched it uh, with a few different people and everyone I've watched it with and that I know in like real life that has seen it has really enjoyed it. The only people I know who have hated it or have me. been like, uh, whatever, have all been like online people. Sure. Sorry, you were saying something? I said, you're saying like all the people I know like it are real life people. And I was joking, like, as opposed sorry, to Sorry, sorry. 
I'm trying to say it, that I know in real life, <laughs> not, not, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Um, but no, yeah, obviously they, they exist. Uh, and so I'm not saying it's a guaranteed that you'll love it, but I do think that, yeah, like if people get together and watch it, I think they'll have a fun time. I think it's a solid B. I think that, yeah, a few things bring it down as we, we've already mentioned and it's, it's not, it's not tight. It's not perfect, but my gosh, is it. Uh, just deliriously fun for the kind of audience that it's it's clearly striking, and that's definitely me. This is the kind of thing that I want from these like Disney reimaginings, an actual reimagining. So I'm pretty happy with it. But what about you? Yeah, I mean, if the alternative is that we just get these pulseless uh, shot for shot remakes of animated films, I'll certainly prefer this one. Um, I would rather just see original films at this point, but I don't think that's really Disney's, Disney's uh, uh, priority at this point. Right. So I have to kind of accept that on my own terms. But I mean, of these live action remakes, I guess I'm kind of in the same boat as Maleficent, where I kind of admire its bunk. I admire what it's trying to do. I just don't think I really connect with it, but I don't disconnect with it either i just think it's kind of a bit of a muddled mess in its current execution but the thing that took me aback was when i went into the film based on the marketing i was like oh this is going to be disney's attempt at punk and i guess that's sort of true but i guess really what it's eh, ultimately trying to be it is disney's sure but i guess what it's really trying to be is like disney's version of camp or like a kind of big broad 200 million camp spectacle yeah. And um, as the, you know, the quote or paraphrase uh, Susan Sontag, it's kind of hard to describe what punk or not punk, what camp is. <laughs> so I, I don't, in my opinion, the movie doesn't really become camp outside of like one montage scene. That's like the closest I think the movie gets to having a camp sensibility. But at the same time, I kind of wish the movie was willing to indulge that side of it more because that's clearly where the movie has the most fun. And I, I get the vibe that, um, has similar to that Met Gala from like 2019 where like the theme was camp and like everyone just had a different idea of what camp is that, um, I, I guess Disney itself just doesn't really have a firm definition of what they want camp to be. So I think that kind of adds to why I find this movie to be thematically and aesthetically a bit of a mess. But ultimately, I, I found it to be a more or preferably enjoyable film as opposed to some of the other th blockbusters that we're getting from Disney at this point. So not a film I hate, just not a film I really have strong opinions towards either. So I'll give it a. Uh, a sort of uh, bemused C plus. All right, that's a B for me, C plus for Will. Yeah, you know it's it's definitely not as high for me as my I'd say my two favorite Disney reimagining remakes, whatever, are certainly Pete's Dragon, Jungle Book. I, I really dug those two movies, but both came out the same year. Um, sure. The rest I've been I thought like they're some of them are okay. Some of them, I think, are just outright bad. Some of them are soulless, pulseless, I think you said, uh, like that yeah. Lion King remake. And yeah, I thought- Yeah, that's that sounds, the worst. Yeah, you know, I thought Maleficent was okay. Aladdin was okay. They're mostly just okay. Cinderella is yeah. okay. But, you know, this yeah. to me was like I like No, I like uh, like Cinderella. That's probably my favorite outside of Pete Dragon. I, I don't, I know people like Cinderella quite a bit. I, I think that it's Cinderella is like close to where I'm at with this one, where I enjoyed it. I think it's solid and everything, but I think I would take this one over that one quite easily uh, in the grand scheme. But yeah, like I said before, critics aren't loving this thing, but it's still doing okay 
critically. I mean, some critics are loving it, you know, like I am. So 73% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 259 reviews. Average rating is 6.6 out of 10. And I think this is one of those cases where I think the cinema score we can actually talk about again. Uh, there are actually people oh, wow. watching this in the theater. Uh, the cinema score is an A. So I think, yeah, that's kind of tracking with how the people who know that they want to see this are willing to go to a theater to see this are getting what they want. And so I think Disney's probably happy about that. It's reaching its audience. But as we kind of already mentioned, it does kind of come down to, well, how many of those people are there? And is that going to be sustainable over the next few weeks, especially as we have Conjuring Part 3 coming out soon? We have In the Heights coming. Uh, there's there's a lot of other movies that are going to be competing for theatrical attention. The summer movie season, will Ashton, mm -hmm. is here. But sure. there you go. Yeah, in the Heights, I mean, they're definitely they're trying to bank on that one being a big theatrical experience. And I don't blame them because it looks fun. Yeah, and it's one of my most anticipated of the year. I cannot wait to see in the Heights. I'm so excited and it can't come here soon enough. <laughs> but that is Cruella. It is 134 minutes long. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube. See you all next time.